All right, well, welcome everyone to the <laughs> totally untitled podcast, maybe the long telegram, because that's what we got branding for done. But um, yeah, we're here talking about some of the biggest geopolitical stories of the last two weeks. Of course, what's going on between Israel, Palestine, Gaza, and Hamas, as well as a little bit more underreported what's going on with Russia uh, in the east of Ukraine with Avdivka. Um, we'll get to that later in the show if we get time, but I think starting off is obviously what's going on between Israel and Hamas for people who, I guess, don't have internet access until today. Uh, you might have missed that on October 7th, Hamas launched a massive terror attack on Israel, killing, I think, about 1,400 people, capturing uh, 200 hostages. And in response, you know, Israel has declared war on Hamas. There's been a lot of news about a, a, a looming ground invasion, which has not yet happened. And in the two weeks since, we've seen Israel launch about 8,000 different um, uh, sort of bombing attacks on Gaza. Uh, if you listen to the Palestinian uh, health ministry, uh, which is run by Hamas, there's been about 4,000 uh, civilian casualties, which I believe includes Hamas fighters as well. They haven't reported any numbers on that, so I assume it's included in there. Uh, and there's been a lot of debate in terms of what Israel should do, what you know, 10-7 means for the possibility of a two-state solution and what's going to happen if Israel invades or if they don't invade. And we wanted to sort of take a different approach to this, sort of try to take the politics out of this, view it from a more historical, political, economic lens. And that's what we're going to attempt to do here because we're all super qualified for that. And we're definitely 100% experts and not going to get anything wrong. And with that out of the way, we'll give it to Andrew to start a conversation off about the Israel-Hamas war. Thanks. I mean, I think one of the big questions that we've been trying to understand, everybody's been trying to understand really, is why did this attack take place? Um, and I think some of the initial rationales, uh, you know, were a little bit lazy. You know, I think some people said this was just you know, an act of terrorism that there's no rationale, but even terrorism has goals. Um, and, you know, people from the other side said, you know, Palestinians have been undergoing this oppression for so long, and this is just sort of a natural consequence of that. Um, but oppression has been sort of the status quo, so I don't know how that could be sort of the forcing function for violence here. Um, so I think that there are some other underlying, um, maybe more contextual drivers for what happened on October 7th that hopefully we'll get to dig into today. Um, and just from my perspective, I think it's important maybe to look back at the last five years or so um, and understand some of the major events that have happened with the U.S. and the Middle East um, to sort of contextualize the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I think first going back to 2018 when Trump pulled out of the JCPOA, um, I think the sanctions that were put on Iran as a result of that uh, and sort of the trickle down effect on all of Iran's subsidiaries, Hezbollah, uh, to a lesser extent Hamas, the Houthis in Yemen, um, you know, that drastically affected their own financial ability to survive um, and to fund some of their activities. And, you know, especially for those with political um, sort of responsibilities as well, that was a big hampering uh, effect on them. I think you also have to think about the Abraham Accords and Israel's uh, sort of diplomatic activity in the region recently. Um, you know, Israel's new, relatively new, more right-wing uh, regime that's been in power now for about a year. Um, and then also Saudi-Israel uh, Saudi uh, normalization. Um, you know, I think those are some of the big uh, 
sort of factors at play here. Um, and so I think when you take those together, you see uh, sort of increasing pressure on Iran, increasing pressure on Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, and then, you know, when you think about the events of the summer, you know, Israel's uh, operation, let's call it in Janine, what happened at the Al-Aqsa mosques, I think you see really just a confluence of um, emotional, historical, uh, and uh, political baggage um, that sort of, I think, resulted in some of what we've seen recently. So, I mean, where do we want to sort of take, take from that? I think, I think the Abrams Accords and Saudi Arabia normalization, I think, is interesting. So I, I, I found a poll, um, quite a few polls that were done by a, basically the only sort of Palestinian um, polling that's out there. Uh, and it, it, it's in the dock for everyone here to look at, which is Palestinians more positive on Abrams Accords. Um, and then there's a, another one about Saudi-Israeli normalization as well. Um, and what I thought was interesting about these polls were if you look at the first one, um, what impact will the Abrams Accord have on the region? Um, it's actually generally kind of split. The, I, I, I was actually surprised that the uh, in Gaza they were more sort of positive about the Abrams Accords than in the West Bank. Uh, or in East Jerusalem. And then if we look at the impact of Saudi-Israeli normalizations, um, what I think was is really interesting, and I think actually might tie into why this attack happened, and there's another article I want to just quickly walk us through, is that this, this poll was in June of 2023. If Saudi Arabia normalizes relations with Israel, Palestine, uh, Palestinian leadership should also normalize relations and end the conflict. And in, the, in, in Gaza, that had about 50%. Um, in favor of it in East Jerusalem, it had over 50%, and in the West Bank, about I would say a third of the individuals there were in favor. Um, and then there's just this this other article that um, earlier this year there was a a, a protest um, with thousands taken to the street in Gaza, sort of um, uh, protesting against the rule of Hamas. And so, with all of those sort of in mind, I mean. How do we view sort of this on sort of Saudi-Israeli normalization? Would that have, like, how would that have impacted this? If, if you listen to the Palestinians, I mean, it, it, I think if you were to do it by population, I think a majority would then favor ending the conflict with, 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 with Israel. And we'll get into more polling about a sort of two-state solution, which I thought the numbers were actually quite surprising there. Um, but yeah, sort of take that little bit of information. What do you guys think? Uh, so, not to be that guy, but it's called the Abraham Accords. The Abrams is the U.S.'s battle tank. I've been getting um, ready for a few which, car, right? Yeah, just letting you know that. That's it? Oh, do you want me to lead? I mean, yeah, so I can I can continue on, sorry. Um, I, you know, it's interesting that Gaza supports in the West Bank doesn't. Um. I wonder what that, you know, I wonder what the implication means there and why, what the reasoning behind that is, you know. I think, so one thing that's worth noting is that this pollster is based in the West Bank. And so maybe, I mean, polling in sort of Western liberal democracies is very difficult. Uh, you can only imagine what it's like polling in, 
in in Gaza uh, or the West Bank or or any of that as well. So, you know, that could be the issue. Um, but really, if you, you look across all the polls when it comes to so later, um, if you compare Abbas to the to the head of Hamas and and who Palestinians would would vote for in an election, it's actually Abbas gets more support in Gaza than he does in West Bank or East Jerusalem by actually pretty considerable numbers. Now, maybe that's because everyone in West Bank knows Abbas more and how corrupt he is. Um, maybe it has to do again with sort of the difficulties of, of polling. Um, that actually surprised me as well. And, I, and I, I was curious to hear what you guys might think of that. Yeah, in general, like I would take every poll coming out of here with a bit of a grain of salt. Like I think the good polls are ones that kind of are consistent. You're pulling the same sample of people over many years and you can kind of look at secular trends. Uh, but I think kind of just like one-off polls, I don't take that seriously, especially like, you know, I and I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying before about, you know, if you're in Gaza, you know how bad Hamas is. And if you're in the West Bank, you know how bad uh, Fatah is. Um, so I, I wouldn't take that so, so seriously. Um, I don't know. I think it's circling back. Um, I don't know how long you want to spend on this, but I think what Andrew was talking about earlier, like that, like kind of the initial response was, this is just another terrorist attack. And then, and then you kind of put in a lot of context. Is this a response to Israeli Saudi normalization? Is this a response to kind of Israeli's right wing government and kind of their offensive actions, you know, with, you know, tear gassing the Temple Mount and things like, you know, Al-Aqsa um, and stuff like that. Um, I think it was actually really interesting. There's a pretty big debate in the academic literature on how we should look at terrorist action and whether we should consider them kind of as a strategic actor that has like rational goals and is trying to achieve those goals through the tactics of terrorism, or if we should kind of think of them as, as actually trying to sig signal to domestic, pol uh, domestic uh, populations for support. And that really they're just, um, that they, they actually have, this isn't a strategic move, it's just that they're trying to out, outbid other rivals um, and kind of by, you know, killing as many Israelis as they can is their way of achieving popularity within within the populations of Gaza and the West Bank. And this isn't some grand strategic move. Um, and there's, I think it's just interesting that there's actually just a huge academic debate on this subject. I don't know if you guys want to get into this. But um, like, is Hamas a, a rational actor from an international strategic perspective? That's not like a easy question to just simply answer. I mean, yeah, I think that I mean, is interesting to sort of get into. And I think maybe tied into the domestic political um, aspect of this. So that sort of same polling institute, AP reported back in 2011 after um, the Gaza war that happened there that we covered uh, just about two years ago, that there was a huge up. Uh, uptick in support for Hamas um, after that the war concluded, um, and so that sort of ties back into the sort of domestic political um, factor here, going back to like the protests that also were happening in Gaza as well. Now, after the sort of Gaza war in, in 2021, if you look at the polling, um, Palestinians thought that they won that sort of round of fighting, and I think. Um, there was probably a better case to be, I mean, like one could see how they could rationale that. I don't know if that's how they're feeling today. And so maybe, um, they won't see the same amount of sort of domestic support because they're not viewed as sort of winning this conflict as of right now, given the sort of extreme bombing campaign that Israel has gone yeah. on since then.
I think, um, like, not to interrupt, but I think there is, like, a bit of, like, I think a lot of Palestinians see, especially Fatah, as kind of corrupt and having been, having sold out to the Israelis. Like, that, that's, I think, a huge thing. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of these terrorist groups is, I think, just, I think it's, terrorist is, terrorism is a way of signaling that they're actually committed to the cause of Palestinian liberation. Um, and that kind of, that I think is really, I think what it's about. And I think they see that kind of like working with Israelis and negotiations. I think a lot of them are forward in, in principle on like economic and like, you know, economic grounds and they don't want their homes destroyed. But I think they also are very, very skeptical that it can work and very suspicious of parties that collaborate or work. I think they would use the word collaborate with the uh, occupiers. And I think that's, that's personally how I would, um, how I would view these terrorist actions. And I think, yeah, going back to the polling, um, they definitely, I think you do see that um, when you pretty much are able to kill Israelis, you get a big polling boost, even if the war isn't successful. And, and you see this even after like the Yom Kippur war with the Egyptians lost, but they were able to inflict significant casualties on the Israelis. And you see, um, who, who was it Nasser Sadat, I always forget. You know, you, there's all those pictures of him parading through Cairo, like he was some war hero. And he didn't win the war, but, you know, you know, the Yom Kippur War is taken as this victory because it was a resistance against Israel and they killed a bunch of Israelis. So I think that is kind of, that's my basic model for how to understand uh, these these terrorist attacks is that it's just signaling that we are committed to killing Israelis who are committed to the cause of Palestinian liberation. And I, I actually, and just I don't want to get too much into all the polling because I think later I think that's interesting to I sort of dug up a lot of that to you know we keep hearing that sort of Hamas does not represent the majority of Palestinians so it's really trying to see well, what does the majority of Palestinians think. But there is in the polling one thing is that there's a major uptick I think about 20 points between 2022 and 2023 in terms of support for armed resistance groups in general. Um, and Lion's Den has sort of become the most popular group within uh, sort of Palestine right now. Um, and they are sort of uh, an armed group. And in a New York Times article in 2022, they're behind a, a lot of the sort of fighting that then happened in the West Bank. And so if the majority of the people are in favor of armed conflict and rebellion, then sort of that get back to your point that this is in, you know, signaling is sort of in some sense, Ben, I know you raised your hand like a good boy. So why don't you take the mic? <laughs> so I think, I mean, and this is not generally about the polling, but it's about this particular terrorist attack. This one seems less generated by domestic and rather like a Hail Mary attempt to disrupt Israeli Arab relations. Because if Israel and Saudi Arabia normalize ties, over there's no one left in the region except iran who's not arab anyways uh or i guess syria too but they're also not arab so it's kind of like this last ditch attempt to theory kind of disrupt enough and bait israel into responding in such a way that uh alienates them away from the rest of the arab world which is also why a lot of people believe iran was behind this attack even though I guess everyone but Israel is saying there's no evidence to tie them, but Hamas and Hezbollah do say they funded it. So, Well, that's what I was going to bring up. I think when we're talking about the why, we, I don't think we can treat Hamas as sort of an autonomous entity that's just acting out of its own interests. Um, because I do think that, you know, obviously to a lesser extent than Hezbollah, but they are, 
you know, funded, supported by Iran. Um, and actually, I mean, it was really interesting. I, I keep this, uh, I guess, since the beginning of the year, I've kept this log of just like news stories that I read every few days. Um, and going back to April, uh, you know, the Quds Force, Iran Special Forces Unit, um, who's now led by a guy called uh, Esmail Khani, uh, who preceded Soleimani that Trump killed um, in, a, in a drone strike. He basically held a gathering of Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Lebanon um, to discuss what was going on in Israel. And these meetings, you know, continued through the summer. Hamas also met with Saudi Arabia. Um, but it seems like Iran had a very central role in how they were thinking strategically throughout the sort of early parts of this year. Um, and as you mentioned, Ben, obviously Iran has a lot to gain from uh, Israel-Arab relations being um, sort of stymied. Uh, so I think we do have to look at Iran as like a major player in this conflict, um, not only because they have a lot to gain, but also because they likely had um, at least somewhat of a role in the initial attacks. I mean, speaking of Iran uh, and causes for this, do you guys, how how do you weight the claim that the sort of unfreezing of $6 billion to Iran played a role in this? It's flagrantly false. Absolute yeah. nonsense. Uh, I mean, look, the money hasn't been touched. It's stuck in Qatar. Or Qatar. So unless they uh, are going to commit a bank heist to get the $6 billion, they're not getting it. But also the United States has frozen that $6 billion because it hasn't been touched. It can only be used for food and medicine, and yeah, Iran but has to you know put how, that... But if, if, yeah. if you can spend that $6 billion on food and medicine, you don't have to spend your own $6 billion on food and medicine. How much, Clay, right, how much do you think this attack costed? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in terms of like planning, and, and, and I don't know how much it costs to acquire cheap rockets like that. I mean, if they fired what... I mean... I, I think you can make an argument. Yeah, I mean, it took it took planning, it took administrative and like you know organizational skill. I don't think intelligence resources yeah. as well for bribes. I mean, like the the amount of detail that they had on the Israeli bases that they that that they that they stormed was quite in detail. If you read through the documents of the that some of the fighters had. Yeah, I, I don't think it's about financial constraints. I don't think you know there's any. So no I think that's kind of this. Yeah, yeah. It's just a question. Well, the money also hasn't been touched though. They've frozen it. Yeah, right. but, but they could have. So, it was frozen post. It wasn't frozen before. Right. I mean, this is this is just like a Republican primary talking point. Everyone wants to say it. Someone else yeah. is weak on weak on Iran. That's Joe all. Joe Biden gave them all the money. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so no, I think that's pretty ridiculous. We can all say. I mean, I yeah. Think I, also, mean, I mean, sorry. Go ahead, Ben. I was gonna say. I mean. You did pull it off pretty well, though. You could run in the Republican primaries, as we said. So, we give it a maybe give it a gander if this doesn't work out. <laughs> Go ahead, Andrew. You're good. Yeah, I mean, I think um, two other things to consider. One being the role of religion. Um, I know we talked about this offline uh, earlier this week, um, but you know, obviously. Hamas, Hezbollah, these are all offshoots of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was at least at its start, you know, a pseudo-religious organization. They had sort of religious tenets as part of their sort of main principles. And I think, you know, it's not unreasonable to say that Hamas and Hezbollah are acting, um, you know, out of what they might deem like a defensive jihad doctrine. 
um, you know, as Israel has continued to expand, they see this as, you know, proportionate recourse or recourse, you know, um, to sort of defend Dar al-Islam, the Islamic homeland. Um, and then I think another important thing to consider is we mentioned the Abraham Accords. You know, they started two years ago, I want to say, in 2021. Um, and I don't know that there's been any real positive movement for the Palestinians since then. I think that was part of the understanding is that as Israel warms to the Arab world, you know, just as they'll sort of become friendlier to Israel, Israel will take steps as well um, to make themselves more amenable to the Arab world. And I don't think we've seen that. So this also might be, um, you know, a, a response to what's seen as sort of slow movement on the Israelis part. Well, I mean, that's what, I mean, Kushner said that the Abraham Accords, not Abrams, I don't tanks in my head i'm probably gonna mess it up again was sort of because the palestinian leadership in his own words were not sort of serious and engaging about about finding a solution and sort of then working around palestine to sort of force them into a deal was the impetus behind the abraham accords uh if you believe jared kushner on the lex freeman podcast which what do you guys I mean, has everyone here seen Jared Kushner's Lex Friedman interview, or at least the first hour of it? Yeah, I've watched it now. I try to avoid anything Jared Kushner says, but on the topic of it, I do think, I mean, it is true that Palestine always misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. That is true. Um, but I do think that it's likely, I mean, they're trying to force them into a deal here. Um, I mean, they almost had peace in the 90s, um, and then extremists on both ends made sure that did not happen. Um, and in addition to that, in 2014, when they started talks again, uh, Netanyahu just would not compromise on the settlers. And so Israel kind of, at this point, I think they want to force Palestine. And also, I don't think they want a two-state solution either, though. I think if Netanyahu had it his way, he would mandate it being the current the current way it is. Because Israelis can still expand westward or eastward. So I think he doesn't want peace, if we're being honest. And I think his language and the language of other sort of IDF officials in the last couple of weeks sort of support that as well, that there's no appetite for peace or for, um, you know, resolution. It seems like, you know, Israel's on a revenge mission and, um, and yeah, they obviously want to dismantle Hamas as well. Yeah, I would, no control I, over, okay. no, I would just hesitate. I think there's often conflation between um kind of like israeli action against the west bank and settled like the continued use of settlements and kind of how harsh israel is responding against gaza and i'd say those are you know related but somewhat separate things i think the israeli society is almost entirely united in pretty much saying we need to wipe hamas out and we are gonna you know we're gonna bomb hamas until uh, bomb gaza until we get the job done i think that's pretty much universally supported amongst israelis whether you support uh, in continued settlements or what your appetite for uh, like a two-state solution is, I think that's actually much more divided within within Israel. Currently, I would agree the right-wing government isn't really interested in, in working on that, and they're continuing to build settlements. But there is actually, I think, a large contingent of Israelis who have demonstrated support for a two-state solution. And that's gone down over time, sadly, uh, with, you know, the intifadas and, you know, the failure of Gaza. Um, but I would say that I wouldn't take how Israel is treating, you know, responding to this terrorist action as totally similar. You know, they're not exactly similar as, 
you know, how they view a two-state solution. So I think in, in terms of the polling, I think there is a majority in Israel for a two-state solution in theory. I think the more interesting question is, can Israel and a free Palestine exist peacefully um, within one another? And do they think it's feasible to happen? And we do have some polling on this. So Pew found in 2023 that amongst uh, fewer Israelis now believe that Israel and an independent Palestine can coexist peacefully. In 2013, 50% believed that that could happen. Now that is at 35%. And when you look at the most recent polling in Palestine, this is from the thir- uh, this was done uh, between the 6th and 9th of September in 2023. Um, you have support for a two-state solution is at 32%. But 76% believe that the prospects for the creation of an independent Palestine state alongside the state of Israel during the next five years is slim or non-existent. Um, so I think that's also like there is like the theory of a two-state solution, which has a minority in Palestine, although 33% is not an insignificant number. Uh, and probably has like a slim majority in Israel, but in terms of feasibility, if this is going to happen, they're both roughly at the at the same percent. About you know sixty five, seventy five percent say it can't happen in the, in the near future. At least is sort of my takeaway of that. And then that was all polling done before ten seven. I can only imagine what the polling is now. And then what does that mean for how people are going to pressure their politicians? You know both in in Palestine or arguably it's harder than in Israel but still like these groups can't entirely ignore the will of the people either otherwise at some point it'll sort of boil over so yes <laughs> yeah sorry oh, I didn't want to interrupt so I think you're right in terms of can they peacefully exist I mean one of the obstacles to Palestinian statehood uh, at least with the U.S. as the mediator is that Palestine has to accept some certain conditions, right? They have to agree with borders. They have to renounce terrorism, uh, among many other things. And so if Palestine's willing to do that and they get the statehood and the U.S. removes their veto in the U.N., uh, they can peacefully coexist because now the borders have been settled. They've agreed on what the borders are. They agree on who controls what. They've also renounced terrorism, right? But if they're not willing to accept that, there's just simply no route to uh, statehood or nationhood, really. Um and so, they, of course, you know, the U.S. will not—ultimately, the U.S. decides who gets statehood here. And uh, without those conditions accepted, without this ultimately being resolved and not leading to a country-on-country war rather than a country on the people that are occupying war, you know, it's just not going to happen. What do you mean by the U.S. decides? Sorry, because I actually disagree with that. So the United States is—I mean, for this entire operation— uh, the Netanyahu government has had to get approval from the United States on every step of the way. Uh, in addition to that, uh, with these negotiations uh, during the 90s with the Oslo Accords, all the way up through 2014, even during the Bush administration, um, and then Trump ultimately siding with Netanyahu during this, they have to they have to get the United States approval on it. The United States pushes them on Palestinian uh, statehood. It is the official stance of the United States. The United States supports Palestinian statehood. Like I said, there are caveats and things they have to go with, and uh, you know the yeah, I, so are able to curb I agree that the U.S. is an important yeah. important mediator in pressuring Israel to on Palestinian rights, right, uh, while also supporting them militarily and improving their position, right. I think that's obviously true. I don't think if if the U.S. you know we get 
you know, a leftist president. We get Bernie, Rashid Tlaib or whatever as president. I don't think they can just say, you know, give get your settlements out of the West Bank and Israel has to do anything. Um, I think especially in Israel's, you know, security position um, relative to at least the Palestinians has, you know, just increased and increased over the past years, I think. Uh, we can talk about more of that more about that later. But I think people actually overrate the degree to which the U.S. can pressure either Israel or Palestine on on these issues, on things like or like right of return. If if the U.S. president says tomorrow we want a right of return for all the descendants of Palestinian refugees, Israel just said fuck off. Um, so I think like I think we should actually there is kind of what is it the the superhero version of like the the U.S. can do anything it wants to as long as it puts enough energy into it. The U.S. has put a lot of energy in trying to to solve this crisis, and I'm pretty skeptical of how much they can actually push either side. I think they it, they're more of a moderating force than uh, a deciding force. So well, I think. So I well to disagree. I think that the United States has Israel in a unique negotiating position now. They have not had them in in a while. And that is, Israel does need the United States, with even Defense Minister Gallant saying, uh, we we have to listen to the United States' demands right now because uh, ultimately they give us planes and we need them for the military. And so since they're so reliant on it, the United States has been able to get more concessions for Gazans, for Palestinians, and also getting these hostages out by delaying the ground invasion. And so it comes and goes, right? In 2014, 2015-2016, the Netanyahu government went on a wide-scale influence campaign throughout the United States Congress to get them to oppose the Iranian nuclear deal, right? Um, and so they kind of undermined the president in a very unprecedented way. Um, and so it comes and goes. Uh, when Israel needs the United States more than, the United States exercises pressure, right? When there's peace and nothing's happening, you know, as you said, they're overrated in terms of what they can pressure Israel to do. I mean, but also, at least... Now, this is an area where I've only have a cursory understanding, but to my knowledge, after George H.W. Bush, our support for Israel really wasn't contingent on certain conditions being made or certain actions that we wanted to sort of see happen within the region happen. And we've sort of not given a blank check to Israel, but more done that than in the same way that when we provide aid to corrupt nations, which is, don't look too far into that statement, please, I just... Anyway, but like, you know, it's contingent on it being used in certain ways to achieve outcomes, not just so that it, you know, filters, you know, to the pockets and arguably that should be done to the aid of of, Pal of Palestinians because their leadership is living very nice and rich lives and don't really have to really feel motivated to sort of do anything differently. But I, I do think that the U.S. hasn't really been pressuring Israel in the ways that it could by having military aid and other sort of assistance be contingent on certain actions we would like to see that we think could lead to a sort of two-state solution. Um, but I do generally agree with you, Ezra, that the U.S. just couldn't come in and, you know, make peace happen. But I think a more interesting question is, could the Israeli leadership and the Palestinian leadership, if they wanted to make peace, could they make their populations go along with it? Could they, could they, and you know, that's going to be very difficult for, for both sides to do. Israel, obviously not only given 10-7, but I think that's really now quite large, um, just given what happened, how it happened. Um, you know, now they're 
releasing more of the forensic evidence and some of it's just terrible and then on the palestinian side the half 40 percent of their populations under the age of 14 they've only known hamas's rule and the israeli blockade that's had to come as a result of that um, because of the attacks that happened. Um, and the, you know, I don't know if you guys have seen their sort of version of Mickey Mouse Jihad and sort of like what that, like, it, it's going to be difficult. But if the leadership wanted to make it happen, do you think that they could convince the population that this is good and then could the economic development that would come to Gaza and the peace that would come to Israel, would that then solidify what the leadership sort of forced down the people's throats? I would argue... Oh, go ahead, Ben. I was going to say, maybe, but they did try this once before and ended up with the Israeli prime minister assassinated, right? And and is it called Infantad? I don't know how to pronounce it. Intifada. Yeah, Infantada. Two of them. So... Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so that's all I have to add there, but maybe, probably not. I don't know. I would, I would just go in quickly before Andrew jumps in. I'd say there's also like, I would say, I think a larger context is also just that a lot of Arab, I think, um, Andrew was talking about the idea of kind of Arab lands. I don't know the Arab word for that, but most Arab populations, I think are generally pretty opposed to like. The recognition of Israel, and I think you know, you see Saudi, the UAE, they're they're able to, you know, they're monarchies, right? So they're able to, you know, get relations done with Israel, and they don't really have to ask for consent. Um, and you know, pretty much the U.S. bought off Egypt, but for the most part, there's not, I, there's no real Arab. The, the vast majority of Arabs don't really want to see a Jewish state. Um, and so when you think about like where support for this is going to come from, I just don't really see it. Well, I, I'm basically arguing that you sort of like bribe the leadership and make it happen for them. And then the hope is that, you know, I mean, again, going back to Kushner, I know Ben doesn't want to listen to him. I think it's given the Abraham Accords, you know, maybe someone worth at least listening to on this one topic, but another conversation for later. But like, uh, I think they were saying it's like low tens of billions of dollars or high single digit numbers to rebuild Gaza. That's like, we send Israel before all of this, I think three and a half billion a year. Like it's not a lot of money. And with that, in addition to like leadership forcing it down the throats, like could that happen, Andrew? Yeah, I think on the issue of settlements in the West Bank, I think there is a world in which enough economic development and political um, maneuvering gets Palestinians on board with a two-state solution, but I think that one of the bigger issues, and Ben, I think you brought this up, is just this idea of borders um, and where we're going to draw lines, you know, if we are going to have a two-state solution. I think that's going to be a lot harder to get people on board with. Um, back in March, when Saudi and Iran uh, normalized ties, Saudi Arabia came out commenting on the Palestinian cause and said basically that they're going to be sticking to the terms set out in the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative, which um, for listeners says that, uh, you know, normalization between the Arab world and Israel is contingent on a few things, including full withdrawal from occupied territories, uh, including the West Bank, Gaza, Golan Heights and Lebanon, a just settlement of the Palestinian refugee problem and the establishment of a Palestinian state notably with East Jerusalem as its capital. 
And I think that last part and what we've seen over the summer with the Al-Aqsa mosques and, um, you know, what even we saw with Trump moving the capital under his term, like, I think the geography is going to end up being the biggest hindrance here and the biggest constraint on on a deal getting done. And even going back to 2000, right, with the Arafat deal that people say Palestinians just, you know, missed the opportunity to have a state then, you know, I think two of the things that deal was contingent on was one, that, you know, Jerusalem wouldn't necessarily be the capital, and two, that, um, you know, they wouldn't, that they deal with the Palestinian refugee problem later. Um, so I think that just the geography and the religion aspect of the geography is going to be very tough to overcome. I do want to just, going back to the polling, what I think is really interesting is just, again, you were saying it's going to be easier for the West Bank than Gaza, and yet if you look at all the polling, people are more open to a two-state solution. They actually have better opinions on the Israeli government. So here's a, let me switch the screen again. Um, If, figure, what about the current Israeli government? Is it implementing or not implementing the Oslo Agreement? In the West Bank, 9% said yes, always or most of the time. 30% say so in Gaza. Um, If you look at um, how the conflict should be resolved, um, peaceful or popular resistance as one of the options to break the current deadlock in Gaza, that's 29% and it's 20% in the West Bank. Armed struggle, 54% in the West Bank, 51% in Gaza. Um, if you look at support for forming armed groups, it's lower in Gaza than it is in the West Bank. Um, and I think that sort of goes against, um, what I think we, uh, might think of it. If you look at, you know, support or oppose the Palestinians authority abandonment of the Oslo Accords, 56% support it in Gaza Strip, 67% in the West Bank. Um, uh, maybe part of that's because the West Bank was relatively doing better in the past than it is now, right? If you look at um, what are the conditions in your country, much worse today in between 2018 and 2023. Uh, much worse in the West Bank is 52% and it's only 24% in the Gaza Strip. So maybe it has to to go with that. But um, yeah. I Just think, to jump in, sorry. I yeah. think the reason for that is that um, like actually... Israel is implementing the accords in the Gaza Strip. They pulled the settlements out. While in the West Bank, they're building more settlements. So, like in terms of like, are they following Oslo? Like Israel is following Oslo, and in Gaza, they are not following Oslo in the West Bank. Sorry to interrupt, but I think that's might what might explain that. Would that also then explain the support, like more support for armed struggle and and sort of peaceful resolution? The difference between Gaza and the West Bank as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you also see that, like, right, in you're you're saying there's more support for peace in 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 Gaza, right? Yeah. So I think in Gaza, people see how bad armed struggle is, hmm. and in the West Bank, people see how bad peaceful resistance is, right? It's you know you always want what you don't have. Ben, you're thinking so something. What is people... it? No, I I agree with what he said. The grass is always greener on the other side. I think one of the big questions that comes out of this now is, and we touched on it earlier, but what is the U.S. role in this conflict? Um, I know we spoke a little bit about the capacity of the U.S. to even sort of put its thumb on this conflict. You know, can it really influence Israel's behavior here? Um, Do we think that military troops 
get put on the ground? Do we think that this escalates? Do we think that, you know, a ground invasion does end up happening in the next week? Um, you know, it's Sunday now that we're recording, you know, new week starts tomorrow. Are we going to see any big updates, do we think? I think so. I think a ground invasion is happening. Uh, they've committed verbally so many times now. Um, they, I mean, at this point, it's like every other day, a new minister, like the Minister of Tourism, comes out and is like, we're going to burn out the eyes of every Gazan. And, uh, I mean, that is just how it's going. And so they've really rhetorically backed themselves into a corner. They have to go through with it. The only thing stopping them from doing it, at first they claim it was rain, um, which is an interesting excuse because it did not rain that entire weekend. Um, and then the next reason was the president of the United States is coming, so they had delayed again. And now they're saying it's delayed because the United States is pressuring them to get the hostages out. Um, and Hamas is taking their sweet time doing it two a day. Um, and so I, it's they have to do it. The question is, when will they? Um, and what, what could possibly be their way out of this other than doing it, right? And so if everyone does what they say they're going to do, you know, Hezbollah, the Houthis, or the Houthis, um, as well as the PIJ and uh, all of Iran's other little dumb friends that they've set up across the Middle East, um, it'll be quite the war. But the question is, are the two carriers enough deterrence? I don't know. I mean, so to get to like the timing question, I hate timing questions. I remember before Russia invaded Ukraine, you kept saying, yeah, but like, when's it going to happen? Is it going to be this week or next week? And when it comes to timing of like military invasions, like I only knew when Russia would invade Ukraine six hours beforehand. That's like when I became confident about like when the invasion was going to happen. It's just military planning of invasions is difficult when the go signal is going to be is dependent on so many different things. And so is it going to happen in like a week? I don't know. Is it going to happen though? I, I don't, I mean, there, there's obviously a lot of diplomacy going around. We're seeing like all the Western leaders go to Israel in the same way they went to Ukraine just before the war to help delay that happen. Um, I do think it's getting closer. If you look at the sort of pamphlets that the IDF dropped, um, over Gaza at the start, it was like, it's recommended that you should move South. Um, and I think last night they dropped ones that saying, move south otherwise you might be considered like a terrorist associate or something um much more stark much more like get out of here now and i think the numbers are about six hundred thousand people have left gaza um uh, the north uh, of gaza and gone to the south already which i believe leaves about four to five hundred thousand people left um which actually briefly quick a brief aside quick trivia game um where do you think the Gaza City ranks in terms of population density in Bobo? the world? Yeah. Three. A Gaza City or the entire Gaza, Gaza Strip? Gaza City, not Gaza Strip. Oh, I mean, it's probably, I don't know, top 10. It's up there, yeah. Okay, so we have, we have top 10, but I give, give a number. Ben gave three. Ezra? Seven. Seven. Andrew? I'll go uh I'll go right in the middle, I'll go five. Okay, it's seventy eight. Oh, what? I which I thought was interesting given that the news keeps saying it's That was a waste of time. You should have just told us. Well no, because I think that actually I mean, is that not interesting that everyone has a wrong conception of that? 
Um, I. I mean, I'm. It, you were comparing it gets... to like we're comparing it to like Manila and like Bangladesh. Like, you know, yes. it would be. So but I mean, the like, news calls I, I it the most you know densely populated area in the world. And it comes in at seventy eight. Are they talking about Gaza City though, or the Gaza? Strip? No, no, no. Ga- Ga- Gaza Strip wouldn't even be in the top two hundred or whatever. But yeah, Gaza I mean, City is in the top. It's pretty broad. I, I don't think the point is it's incredibly densely populated. Like I think whether it's if, whether it's closer to Dhaka or closer to Manhattan in terms of density. Where, where, right. where it's does, okay to get where... a question wrong. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, it was you guys a, just didn't want because you look. It was silly a leading. It. it was obnoxious. It, it, it was leading, it was and, no... it, and yet you all fell for it. You all <laughs> fell for the leading question. I all said right, it. Whatever. Up, and you all just. I, I think it's. I think it's pretty irrelevant. About... Killing Gazans is that is that the goal of your question? Is that this is okay now? That's ridiculous. Uh, I think I think to bring this back to something actually relevant. Um, I think the will Israel invade Gaza? I think is the best answered not by speculation but by prediction markets. Um, Ugh. right. And currently, Poly Market has a fifty thousand uh, dollar volume market on will Gaza will Gaza uh, be invaded by October thirty first, and that is at sixty one percent. So I think that is, I think our priors should just re- defer to the markets unless we have a very strong theory otherwise. But again, that's for the next week. Now, will they invade by the end of the year, which I think is a much all right, more all right. interesting So I'm just question. saying, yeah, so by end of the week, 61%. So I think you can infer by end of the year, it's probably closer to 80, 90. Yeah. I think the more interesting question is how long are they going to do this for? Because they can't, I mean, Israel's a small country. When you pull up all these reservists, you take them out of the economy. Um, so... How long can they sustain this horror? They say it's going to take months, if not years. But in actuality, are they going to go through the entire Gaza Strip and take out Hamas? Um, and how does this get any better, I suppose? Like, it just seems like this they're walking into Fallujah, uh, but worse. I think what I read is the goal is to sort of split it in half to make it easier. And then I don't... I mean, I think one of the Israeli ministers came out and said, like, they'll have less territory afterwards. Which some people seem surprised about when, if you start a war, you might lose territory. That kind of happens. But I think some sort of DMZ, but I don't... We're not talking about like a lot of land here to really sort of make a separation. So um, I don't know that 360,000 troops is enough to occupy the entire Gaza Strip. Is it enough to split it into two? Um, I think that's what... I've been reading, but Ezra, you have a look on your face that says, no, I know what's going on. Um, not not really. You know, I think our prior rehearsal, the, Israel used to, they did used to occupy the Gaza Strip until 2006, right? Uh, with, you know, there was Israeli settlers there, um, and they had a huge percentage of their active forces uh, were spent, you know, protecting the settlers and, uh, you know, running the Strip. And a huge reason why they got out of Gaza was actually because they had to spend so many resources trying to, you know, be actively involved with groups on troops on the ground there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think the other thing we're going to get to is maybe one of the reasons that this has taken so long is that the majority of their forces have not gone to southern Israel. They've gone to the north to deter Hezbollah, right? And that pretty much Hezbollah has said if there is a ground invasion, we will attack. So I think this is a good, you know, lead into talking about escalation and the possibility of a multi-front war. Um, but I think I think you can't 
you can't talk about the Gaza war without talking about um, Hezbollah and escalation. Before and I do think Hezbollah is a lot more more grave of a threat than Hamas to Israel. Before we get to escalation, I just want to ask a question. Perhaps I'm ignorant on this. On the Israeli settlement question, are they building any of these settlements on land that wasn't a result of the wars? Like, are they going into land that's, you know, currently administered by either Hamas or the Palestinian Authority and building settlements? Or are these all lands that Israel has won as a result of any of the wars that they fought in the last... 75 years if, if you look at oslo and the areas administered by the palestinians it's only the towns that they live in right um like if you pull up a map of like area a b and c the palestinians like pretty much empty land was not is not administered by the palestinians and israelis are therefore able to build on it i mean not legally i guess but like you know in pra in practicality if you look at like the maps of the settlements in the West Bank. It's on land that was previously unoccupied. Okay. But, at, but often in very close proximity to like Arab towns. Right. And this land became sort of in that no man's land as a result of these wars, right? Yeah. I mean, so after, you know, after the 60, after the, after six, the six day war, Israel controlled, I mean, technically they had military control over everything. But with the Oslo Accords, they gave administrative control to Palestinians in, Palestine, in most Palestinian towns. And then there are some areas, like uh, I think like Hebron, where the Israelis stayed because there was settlers there. So right? is the and legal picture more complicated? Because like, this is one issue that I really haven't done a ton of digging into, but it, it sounds then more complicated than just like, is it? Yeah. Well, technically, what the Palestinians would say is that there shouldn't be any Israeli settlements in the West Bank, right? Because this is this was our land, right? Mm -hmm. Before the war. Before the war, but Israel did not agree to let them administer the entire West Bank. Okay. So the Oslo, the Oslo, you know, area A, B, and C was kind of a compromise to a temporary solution, which then became permanent once a two-state solution couldn't be figured out. So Israel's like, you can temporarily administer your own areas. We'll administer everything that isn't actively a Palestinian village. Um, and then eventually this will become your state. But while they were doing that, they built settlements in lands in the West Bank. All right. We Thank can, we can yeah. throw a map up. And yeah, show, yeah, yeah. Show I'll have to edit that in. But uh, all right, escalation. Now we're talking about Israel invading Gaza. That is one thing. Actually, we have a prediction market. We can look at this. It's from Good Judgment Open, which is, will Israeli defense forces invade Lebanon with tanks before December 13th? And that's currently at 27%, just as a little bit of table dressing. Um, obviously, a lot of talks about all the different fronts that could break out in an Israel-Palestine war. Um, you have Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, Syria within israel itself um as well um are those all the fronts where that, that could uh break out ezra wh wh why don't you sort of take over this multi-front war yeah so i would say there's the west bank which can erupt into violence you have also within israel israel has a very large arab population of israeli citizens 20 percent. uh you saw but um but they can start rioting and 
burning stuff. You saw that after Netanyahu is very provocative and, you know, tear gassing Al-Aqsa. Um, and then you have in the north, you have Syria and Lebanon. Hezbollah's most of their forces are concentrated in Lebanon, but you also have, you know, the Syrian government is not friendly with Israel and you have significant Hezbollah forces within Syria. And then you have Gaza. Um, then, you know, you have technically, you could also say you have Jordan and Egypt. Those are less of a threat. Uh, but if this really got out of hand and you potentially saw the Jordanian and the Egyptian government collapse, that's when you could see, um, you know, the current Jordanian and Egyptian government are not going to fight a war with Israel. But if they collapse, they very much could. So let's let's just start off with some numbers here. What would you conditional on Israel invading Gaza by the end of the conflict? Will another front have opened up? And we're going to have everyone give a little number on this. And I know no one came prepared for this. I see looks on faces looking a little scared. No, you're it's asking fine. for odds? I mean, I can go first. Um, <laughs> conditional on Israel going into, <laughs> going into Gaza, I would say... I mean, I'd certainly, I think, be over... I think I'd be over 50% that a second front opens up. I feel like there's at least been somewhat of like a verbal red line set by some of these other countries and non-state actors about how they will respond to a ground invasion. Um, I think also I mean, we've seen the power of, you know, social media and just the dissemination of video as an ability to motivate and galvanize a cause and people to respond. So, um, and I think we have to think about, you know, less preferences about will people want to get involved and more constraints about, you know, how will I be able to um, garner support for my own domestic population if we don't respond to what's perceived as Israeli aggression against the Arab world. I think um, there's going to be a lot of pressure to respond. So I would say it'll be fairly likely if there's a ground invasion that um, whether it be a non-state actor or another state, you know, getting involved. Ben? Um, I think it's hard to say. I think there's been a lot of there's been a lot of effort by the United States, um, and they're really the United. States, I think in terms of escalation happening, I think they're really the only ones that matter because it was just Israel standing alone. I think Hezbollah's decision is to go in, but there are now two carriers off the coast of Israel, um, and one of them being the largest in the world, right? The the Ford, I think. This depends on how much pressure Iran's putting on Hezbollah, right? Um, because, you know, Israel initially wanted to do a preemptive strike on Hezbollah. That was vetoed by the Biden administration. Um, this is reported in the New York Times. I think, I, I mean, there, the message has been clear as well, you know, uh, that the Lebanese people will suffer um, if Hezbollah does this. Um, the message has been clear to Iran. So I guess the question is, how much does Iran think that they can push Hezbollah into attacking Israel without the U.S. carrier in the Middle East striking Iran? I don't know. Because the U.S. in the past has struck Iran, and it's not resulted in a full-scale war. And I don't think Iran wants a full-scale war. So I think, really, the escalation question is not really about Hezbollah and Israel. It's about Iran and the United States. Because ultimately, Israel is a sovereign nation who has control over their own decisions, as Ezra said. But Iran controls these groups. They're puppets. Hezbollah is maybe the one that has perhaps the most autonomy, but not even fully. 
So I think ultimately it depends on if they buy the U.S. threat that they're going to strike Lebanon. Uh, it doesn't help the U.S. said they wouldn't put troops on the ground. I think that helps deterrence, but we'll see. So you want me yeah. to get a percentage? You know it. If 50. No, I don't even know. 50%? Yeah, we'll go 50. All right, go ahead, Ezra. Yeah, I think you did a really good job of, like, you know, breaking down the major players here between Hezbollah Iran. Um, I think in the U.S., I think, um, yeah, I think you see also the, the U.S., Iran kind of striking U.S. Um, U.S. troops over the past week in Iraq and northern Syria. And one take that I saw, which was really interesting, is that um, the reason they're doing this is that they can justify, you can say here, look, we're resisting, you know, there's the... Western occupying forces without actually at directly escalating against the Israelis. And the, and the reason they're doing that is that the U.S. is much more constrained, while the, Israel is a, a much harder actor to kind of predict and deal with at this point, a little more rational. Um, so yeah, I think it, it is really hard to model. I think a key dynamic here is that um, that Israel can kind of deal with Hamas escalating it with rocket fire and they can they can wait like israel can deal with a couple hundred rockets even you know close to a thousand rockets coming out of hamas out coming out of gaza every single day and they don't really need to act because the hamas's you know rocket stores aren't that good hezbollah really does have one of the best rocket artilleries in the entire world um and if they decided uh to really start launching salvos to the full the fullness of their capacity they would really do a lot of damage on tel aviv they could potentially hit US, the Israel's nuclear reactor. Um, and that kind of would trigger, I think, because Israel can't, you know, Israel can't respond to these rocket attacks just with airstrikes, because that won't be effective. Uh, you saw this with kind of the US's attempt to try and knock out Israeli scuds uh, during the the Gulf War that, you know, trying to trying to stop someone from firing rockets is really hard. And the only way to really do it is a ground invasion. So I think you can really just escalate really quickly that if Hezbollah starts launching thousands of rockets, it kind of necessitates um, an Israeli ground invasion because Iron Dome, David's Iron Sling, whatever you want to call it, Israeli air defenses can't handle Hezbollah rockets attacks. So that kind of necessitates escalation with a ground invasion. I think you guys are right that it's about 50%. I think, you know, there, there have been artillery strikes ATGM strikes between Israel and Hezbollah over the past couple of days. And you see about like five Israelis getting killed, like 20, 20 Hezbollah operatives, I think it's about over the past two days. Um, that doesn't seem particularly stable. Uh, but then again, I think I think Hezbollah is much more, they have a lot to lose and they seem much more rational than Hamas in terms of modeling this. So so yeah, it, it is a really hard one. I, I, I agree. I'd put it maybe a little lower, even... I maybe forty five just to, you know, just to bracket. Um, but you know, I think the difference between forty five fifty and fifty five, there's no difference, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a significant probability. I guess I have to go now. I mean, when I asked the question, I think I was lower now listening to you guys. But I mean, also I think last night Israel once again hit two of Syria's airports because. Um, I think they were saying that they were going to be used to support um, Iranian-backed fighters that would then attack Israel as well. So um, that's a troubling signal. I think, again, the Hezbollah and the rocket fire is a very interesting question. Not only, you know, overwhelming Israeli defense um, 
and the Iron Dome, but also the U.S. carriers that are on there. I think one of the carrier ships have already fired 20% of the rockets that they have on board, and they can't resupply by sea, so they're going to have to leave the Mediterranean, um, and that was only firing, I don't know, about like 50 um, missiles and drones down at this point total, and it's already at 20% capacity for one of the carriers. Um, so are our assets also are at you, risk? You know, like we're, we're talking about... Go on I would on. say yes. I would say the people I'm reading, Hezbollah has advanced anti-ship missile capabilities and that like shooting down, shooting down missiles, you know, we have a, we spend a lot of money on this, you know, like the Aegis system, right? Uh, it's pretty fucking hard. And um, like the idea that maybe not a, a carrier, but that a destroyer, or, you know, there, there is some successful strike on a U.S. battleship. It's also not uh, unprecedented, you know. You know, you ha you have cases of terrorist groups being able to hit U.S. U.S. warships, you know, in the '90s, right, with Al Qaeda. Um, so I I think there's a real threat there, and a real, you know, and it's also hard to, you know, you can have one Hezbollah cell. You know, these terrorist groups are not perfectly coordinated, even if Iran doesn't want them to necessarily hit a U.S ship you know you, shit happens in war especially when you're just like a, a hezbollah yeah um, i mean i mean so. and you saw that with hamas on 10 7 with how you know different groups of fighters acted in, in entirely different ways Absolutely. as well right like they're this isn't like the u.s military in terms of you know and even there you're not going to have everyone sort of work in the exact same way um so then like what you know is is the U.S. actually projecting strength, or have we now created a, a liability for ourselves? And is that something that might want to be exploited? Like, what happens if a two-front war breaks out, a U.S. carrier sinks, and you know Russia is able to really make significant advances on Avdiivka, and all that happens in a in a short period of time? That's not a. I don't know. That... Hezbollah has strong anti-ship missiles, but they're not going to sink a U.S. carrier. I agree with that. I mean, that's that's really, really you, only a capability China has. I mean, if 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 they launch two thousand really? missiles at a U.S. carrier, they'll still be there. I don't. Maybe I overhyped the it a little bit. They don't. They, they're not. They don't have the capability to like coordinate two thousand anti-ship missile strikes. They can. They can hit. They can maybe take out a destroyer or hit it with aircraft carrier. But with with drones, do you even need to use traditional anti-ship, or can you use normal missiles and just guide like? Drones are easier to shoot down, and they don't have the same. Like, no, no, no. Just payload. to fire normal missiles at the the carrier. Get creative in terms of just yeah. don't firing your anti ship missiles. Fire all your missiles at a carrier. So they can, just the, the carrier can pull back from where they are. They can go pretty far away, and still have the ability to strike with aircraft, right? Which makes. The striking range, the U.S. can strike Lebanon in areas where Lebanon can't strike the United States. So that kind of complicates things for Hezbollah, but also but the United States for projecting bases strength all around the Middle East. Pull our carriers. You know, we brought them up. Oh, big tough. And now they have to be pulled back. Or can but does or, it make a difference if it takes an hour to bomb them or two? Be sort of resupplied at 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 sea, and 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 the U.S. government has this capability, and they just don't want the world to know that. We can do that because it would mean our navy's better than we tell people it is, which I don't know why we would do. But well, so I mean, it's just not just about the carriers. The bases have also been; uh, they've also had aircraft forwarded into them, right? More uh, A-10s, F-22s, uh, F-16s, F-35s. So 
I mean, there are bases all over the Middle East that they can strike Lebanon from. This is, I, I'm not concerned about the United States at all. I'm concerned a lot for the Lebanese people uh, with potential of a Hezbollah-U.S. war. But that's who's truly going to suffer here, not the United States. So, so if, 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 if there's a two-front war, you would say there's less than a 5% chance that a U.S. carrier would get hit or sunk in... Not sunk. I think the chance that... So in 2006, actually... Damaged. In 2006, Hezbollah was able to get a, you know, a missile hit on a uh, on a Israeli Corvette, I think, and they killed, like, seven Israelis or, like, five. You know, it wasn't... Um, like, you know, there's a big difference between able to threaten, uh, you know, like, naval assets and actually sink or destroy them. But I, I think overall the point that, you know... There could be an event where there's U.S. casualties. I don't think there's going to be the destruction of the U.S. Mediterranean fleet. But Agreed. Would you strong. rule it out, though? Yes, I would rule out that the U.S. Mediterranean fleet could get destroyed by Hezbollah. Who? So what exactly do you think Hezbollah is that you think they could take out the entire Mediterranean fleet? You don't think the Iranian military has the capabilities to sink a U.S. carrier? And that if it were to break out into a two-front war, that they might not pass on that to stick it to us? I mean, here's, no, it's really hard wouldn't... to sink a carrier. I mean, you need <laughs> at least six or seven, like, minimum, to sink a carrier. But also, it has to get through, because a carrier doesn't stand alone. It has a strike group, right? It has anti-ship uh, missile defense systems. Uh, it has, you know, nine other ships around it protecting it. I mean, you're going to have... You're going to need a lot of anti-ship missiles and a lot of luck. In so order to Hezbollah hit. has two has two main anti-ship missiles, the C-802 C8, and the Yakahut, which is, I think they're both Iranian-produced. They both have about a 200-kilogram warhead, which is, if you look at the size of, like, the PLA's, like, anti-air force, uh, anti-aircraft carrier rocket artillery, I think it's, like, five, it's, like, much larger. Um, but, but, again, when I was talking about that Hezbollah has like an incredible rocket rocket force. Most of those aren't able to target naval assets because na you know naval naval assets maneuver. That's like an inherent part of ships is that they're always moving. Um, so being able to hit an Israeli skyscraper with pinpoint accuracy is much easier than being able to target a moving a moving ship uh, which has you know built-in defensive capabilities. But if you have eyesight on the ship at all times because of drones and whatnot, does that not? increase the odds you can hit it hezbollah doesn't have the capability to have like constant isr over the eastern mediterranean that's just not not constant but to if you, to do it a, a you know a one-off attack they couldn't i mean i guess are military experts i mean i actually think i i spent like a, a, none of us are military experts but i think i can say with pretty high confidence hezbollah does not have the capability to take out a u.s aircraft strike and does iran Fair. do you think that escalation ends at hezbollah because right now we're talking about Hezbollah as like sort of the next step in this conflict uh, in terms of escalation. You know, Lebanon, Hezbollah getting involved because of ties to Iran. If they do get involved, I mean, let's do some second order things. I mean, the Houthis they're... already got involved. It obviously doesn't end with Hezbollah. It's, right. uh, it's, it's and... Iran's whole nexus of terrorist groups. And they can, you know, they can transfer, you know, Hezbollah was started in Lebanon. Then they were sent to Syria to shore up Iran's position in Syria. So Iran has demonstrated that they're able to transfer different, you know, regional non-state actors within the Middle East to kind of where they're needed based off the strategic situation. Right. And so now let's say that you have fighters from Syria and Lebanon getting involved. 
um, ostensibly then the United States involvement has to increase as well. Do you think other um, U.S. allies, Western allies come to the support of this conflict? Do you feel like there's a constraint there because of what's happening in Russia, Ukraine in terms of just like aid, resources, attention to manage both conflicts? And I mean, does, is this an opening for China now with Taiwan in the next 12 months to start encroaching because, you know, three fronts might be too much for the U.S. to handle at this point? Like, I think some of those questions with escalation are, you know, very important as well. Um, you know, I know we've said that uh, the attack may not have had sort of a clear rationale, but I do think that further entrenching the world into these two camps, especially with, you know, the evolving of BRICS recently and stuff, I think it's, you know, a real conversation. Um, you know, it seems like there's increasingly sort of two sides in the world right now. I thought it was multipolarity, Andrew, that you're always tweeting about. Not bipolarity. We're on the way to, Ooh. you know what, that's a great point. I still do think that, you know, I mean, like we've seen in this conflict, for example, like Saudi Arabia, I don't think that they've um, hitched themselves to either sort of side in this conflict just yet. Um, I think that they have some autonomy to, you know, behave in their own best interests, whatever that might be. Um, I think that probably goes the same for like in India, um, you know, so, I mean, yeah, it will be interesting to see how Saudi Arabia, for example, responds to this conflict, I think. Um, what I thought was interesting about Saudi Arabia about? is like there, mm -hmm. I, I think we talked about it on our private phone call, but there was a, a phone call between the presidents of Saudi Arabia and the crown prince, uh, the crown prince and uh, the president of Iran. And the Iranian readout of the call was like almost the exact opposite of the Saudi, like the Saudi Arabia one took a very neutral stance and the Iranian one sort of blamed Israel for everything. and was very supportive of Palestine, which I thought was interesting of just where Saudi Arabia is sort of positioning themselves. They really haven't taken a hard line. I know they did shoot down a missile that flew over their territory, which, you know, I don't think we should think is helping out Israel militarily and more sort of just looking out for themselves. But, um, I mean, no one else can really, like, Europe can't supply arms to Israel. Like, they can't supply arms to Ukraine or themselves. They don't have a production base. Um, South Korea maybe could play a role in terms of, you know, providing production. But then outside of that, it's the U.S. And we're not even doing great on producing anything. We don't really have as anywhere near the industrial base we did at the end of the Cold War. Um, and I would be really specific when we talk about military arms, like what the constraints are. Maybe we can use this as a way to pivot to Ukraine and Adivka. But I think it's really, it's anti-aircraft, uh, anti-air, anti like anti-missile capabilities which the U.S. has in the West has underinvested in because we invest so much in air power and it's artillery. Those are the two big things that are limited. I think most other things are not going to be really constrained, but I think that's really the limits is artillery and Patriot batteries. Those are the things that we don't have a lot of and are limited in how much we can make. Before we get on to Russia, Ukraine, I just think it is important to also mentioned what was happening in Israel before these attacks took place, the protests against uh, Netanyahu's, I'll say, power consolidation play, um, trying to sort of weaken the power of the courts and um, consolidate more power for himself. I think, you know, it, Israel's two biggest sort of foreign policy points in the re in recent history have been one, to isolate Iran, and two, to normalize with Saudi. Um, I think 
up until the attacks, both of those were looking very bad. Um, you know, so Iran was getting welcomed back into the Arab world. And, you know, obviously, at least our for you know, according to our forecast, normalization was pretty far off. Um, so I, I, I do think that that framing also might help inform how Netanyahu sees this conflict as, you know, this is a chance to now unify Israel again and to win back some some political capital, um, which I think is relevant. You just reminded me. I, was, I I wanted us to call Ben Bibi the whole episode. Forgot to do. Oh, that. We're a little too late for that now. <laughs> I'll do that next time. Um, actually, I mean, yeah. Do you guys want to comment on that? Um, I'll go really quickly. I've been talking a lot. I would say there's um, like you know the is you know Israel's been going down this kind of right wing people would say anti democratic route, which I think there's some truth to. I think also lives in the U.S. kind of. You know, everything's January 6th to us. Um, but, you know, we see it through our domestic politics. In general, I think there's this conception that Netanyahu's going to benefit from this war and that, you know, right-wing prime ministers or leaders benefit from from conflict and violence. I think that's sometimes true. I think BB's, I think the right-wing in Israel will do better after this conflict. It will not be Netanyahu. I think people in Israel see his regime as, you know, his, his leadership has totally failed. And I think they blame the security the failure on him and i think i would be if you want to forecast here will netanyahu be prime minister of israel in three years i'd put it at like 20 percent. i think i think he's finished oh that's actually much higher than remember actually, your words were saying he's been finished and come back what? i mean no i, I mean, mean like, 20 it... look if you look at the base rate he's been the prime minister pretty much every year since like for the past like he's been prime minister years. of israel for more years than abbas has been the leader of palestine so if i'm saying only 20 percent chance that he's the leader three years from now i think that's a pretty big departure from the status quo but do you think he'll come back is he if from he philadelphia in the next three years Sorry, Two separate what's, the, what's the importance of that oh for are you asking my question yeah you brought this oh, up. Well, now, come I just on, think... follow up on it. You can't just drop that. So I, it's so he's from Phil. I think he's from Philadelphia. I mean, we get a Google search. It's probably yeah. he is. Is he? Yeah. Wow. Well, he's the one that so cracked I the guess... Liberty Bell. We should have known the whole time. Oh, well, he, he's, I, I mean... he's it's a mixed. He's a mixed American. I think part of his family. He he grew up in Philly for some of his time, but his family is Israeli. It's something like so, that. All right. So he's so he's an Eagles fan, and based on the Eagles fans I know, I give it forty percent. In three years, he's still prime minister. I mean, they don't go down without a fight. I mean, they are some hard-nosed guys, 40%, based on the fact he's an Eagles fan. So, yeah. Also, what if he, like, wins and the war? that's all due to the, the Jewish leadership of Howie Roseman. But, um, sorry, moving on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if he wins the war, Ben, I mean, Ezra, do you, do you think that makes a difference? Obviously, we haven't even defined what there's, winning there's the war no, There's no winning the war, I think, for him. Yes, Ben. I, yeah, not, I, so not, I agree with Ezra. This is in tenth grade, like history class. It's fine. You can just <laughs> I'll stop raising my hand. But I know I agree with Ezra because uh, I mean, I did. I feel like I saw a poll the other day that showed that most Israelis blame Netanyahu. What happened? Um, so, and I mean, he did get intelligence warnings from Egypt and the United States, and he ignored them. Why? I don't know. But did and, you, and you've seen former defense ministers really come out and you know, really shit on him, uh, which has happened yeah. in the past. But like, I, I would be very surprised if I, I just get annoyed because there's this conventional Twitter view that like, Netan, you know, I even saw this from like some like, tr like Turkish accounts that were talking about how this is 
this is Netanyahu's like way of like consolidating support. And I'm like, no, this is this is going to destroy his political career. Yeah, I mean, the fact that people, other former officials are coming out and condemning him, saying it's his fault. Could you imagine after 9-11, Bill Clinton or Jimmy Carter or Bush's dad were just like, it's his fault, he could have stopped it. Exactly. That would have, the 92% approval rating would not have existed. I mean, look, like, if, if, if he was behind it, they wouldn't have taken this long to invade Gaza afterwards. Yeah, probably. Like, like if they yeah, went no, on like ten eight with like four hundred thousand yeah. troops, then like okay, that's one thing. But like, but I think it's also you know Bibi's a piece of shit, and I hate him. But the idea that he would intentionally let Israelis get like, you know, we we, we don't have to go into the details of what happened, but really gruesome, yeah, terrible, sad shit. The idea that he would allow that to happen for a popularity boost, like, I hate him, and he's a bad guy. But he's not. He wouldn't do that. And speaking of, crazy I, I agree things, with Ezra. Yeah. We, we should talk about Avdivka and what's going on in Russia there because it is a little bit crazy what's going on over there. Although, unfortunately, we're getting to the end of our recording time, which means you guys, the audience, are just going to have to come back soon to see the second part of this episode where we'll talk about Russia's massive offensive on in Avdivka where they've lost perhaps more armored vehicles than Ukraine lost in their four-month, as Andrew would say, not counteroffensive, but... Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, but uh, but they're counteroffensive and what it means for the war, um, because no one's talking about it. But I mean, Ezra, what what would you say? Is is this is important, right? No, I don't think so. I'm being serious. I think it's just more attritional war. I think the important thing is that Ukraine's going to run out of ammunition and air defense, and I think. I think Russia's going to knock out their power over the winter. I think that's the important thing. I don't think this battle is important, though. The Sorry, battle. Okay, well, there you Sorry, go. Except just canceled. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, now we have a great starting right, This is my last episode. time on the GeoVane podcast. It's been a pleasure. Bye. No, um, well, Ezra, Ben, Andrew, we'll, we'll talk to you guys soon and keep this going on probably a more debatable topic given what we've just heard so thanks for watching and hopefully we offended everyone or no one ideally and anyone want to get the last word ben? yeah it's gotta be fun uh, <laughs> you wanna say, i think you did a great job uh, extroing that's that's how we're that's your last no no ezra give us i think andrew's sweater is pretty gay there it is <laughs>